Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hello, I'm Richard Atwood, Crisis Group's Chief of Policy, and I'm standing in today for Rob Malley. And I'm Naz Modirzadeh. Richard, today it's great to be with you, uh, filling in for Rob, and we're going to be talking to two crisis group analysts, Ali Voyez, our Iran director, and Phil Gunson, our senior analyst for Venezuela, to discuss a topic that's come up quite a bit in our previous discussions, but that we really wanted to focus on for a full podcast the issue of U.S. sanctions and how this tool of foreign policy has been used and indeed abused in some cases to advance uh, U.S. interests and to establish certain uh, baselines or try to bring actors to the negotiating table. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. Maybe I could start by asking, you know, I'm sure that during the discussion, we'll talk about the impact of the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy, a big component of which was uh, in both cases, in the Iran case, in Venezuela, was uh, sanctions. We're actually recording this the day before the inauguration. We can look ahead to some of the lessons for that for the new U.S. administration. But I actually wanted to start off with you, Ali, by going back a little bit further in history and talking to you a little bit about the role of U.S. sanctions and multilateral sanctions in getting Iran to the nuclear deal in the first place. So the role that sanctions played under the Obama administration in getting Iran to the JCPOA. Do you want to reflect a little bit on on that first? Sure. Uh, First of all, Richard and Naz, thank you very much for having me. Um, Look, you're putting your finger on a question that was a subject of conjecture before JCPOA was concluded and remains an issue on which Iranians and Americans have uh, vastly divergent views. If you asked most American experts, they would say that Iran came to the negotiating table because of the pressure of uh, U.S. unilateral, 
European multilateral and uh, UN sanctions at the time during the Obama administration. If you ask the Iranians, they would say, no, 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 it was our growing nuclear capabilities, which, uh, you know, they were a few weeks away from having enough nuclear material to produce a nuclear weapon uh, that basically pushed the other side to come to the negotiating table. As always, reality is somewhere in between. I think it's wrong to think that sanctions didn't play a role in nuclear diplomacy. It is also think that they were the only reason that the JCPOA came into being. Reality is uh, the core of the bargain was very simple. Uh, It was normalization of Iran's uh, trading relations with the outside world in return for imposing uh, restrictions on Iran's nuclear program and rigorous international inspection of its nuclear activities. But, uh, you know, I would argue the same motivation that pushed the Iranians at the time to require a win-win outcome in the JCPOA is still driving their policy today. And that is very simple to understand, I think. If you're a weaker state, you don't want to prove to the stronger state that has a big stick in its hand that its stick works, because then you will be in a slippery slope of demands that there will be no end to them, right? Uh, The Iranians have always believed that the only thing that is more dangerous than sanctions is surrendering to them. And this is why what broke the stalemate under the Obama administration in the nuclear negotiations was that in secret negotiations that happened in Oman in 2011-2012, the U.S. stepped away from its maximalist demand of seeking zero enrichment uh, in Iran and uh, recognized that Iran could have a limited enrichment program on its soil. I would argue without that, regardless of the amount of pressure, there would have been no deal. Phil Gunson, if I could come to you with sort of a similar question as Richard asked Ali, of course, and not drawing silly comparisons between very different contexts, but rather, if you could set the stage for us, what is the conception of the purpose of the sanctions against Venezuela? What if we were asking sort of the U.S. government to give its best explanation for for the reason behind these sanctions? What are they seeking to achieve with these uh, ever-increasing sanctions against Venezuela? Well, yes, they are very different countries. You're, you're quite right. Um, but there are also some very interesting similarities between Iran and Venezuela, and in a sense, the objectives that are sought in each case. You know, listening to Ali and um, talk about the reason for the sanctions prior to the agreement with Iran, it's quite clear that, as he said, they're they're much more limited in, in their objectives than they have been in the case of Venezuela. Really, the objective in the case of Venezuela has been pretty much explicitly regime change. I mean, to the extent that the US government has, or its representatives, its its leading spokesmen have said at, at one point or another, the time for talking is over. The only thing that we're willing to talk about to Maduro is the terms on which he leaves office. This is something that I think will mark a very interesting contrast as we move into the Biden administration, because Biden is on record as saying that regime change is something that the US should not be in the business of. And the fact that the sanctions in the case of Venezuela have failed so badly in their maximalist objective and indeed in achieving anything at all, I think really does have a lot to do with the fact that they were attempting too much and there was no really, there was no good way out for the for the Maduro government, despite talk of an off-ramp, despite when you talk to US uh, officials, the, the apparent awareness of a need to give the government a way out. In a sense, they they really backed Maduro against the wall. And when you do that, of course, 
there's very little in it for the government in terms of giving in. Because if the deal is, well, if you step down, then we'll then we'll end the sanctions. The uh, the person in power is quite justified in saying, well, why would I care? I mean, once I'm out of power, I don't care whether you have sanctions or not. Of course, there was a a slightly more nuanced aspect to it in the sense that if you dug a little bit, then not very far below the surface, it was clear that the aim was to cause a split in the government or a split perhaps between the civilian and military sides of the government in order to have one part of the government throw the other part out and thereby trigger a process which ultimately was supposed to lead to the restoration of democracy, the holding of free and fair presidential elections. I heard Ali as sort of suggesting that there is a potential pathway or vision for a kind of sanctions that could be effective and and in some way sort of more morally justifiable uh, if they were narrow and targeted. Is there a less than maximalist version of the sanctions that we're seeing in Venezuela that you think could have possibly been effective to meet any of these kinds of objectives? Well, I think that in the first place, they needed to back away from the idea that there was no possible negotiation with Maduro. You can't go into a negotiation saying that the first thing the other side has to do is get rid of their leader. That I don't think has ever worked in any negotiation historically. And I think, and in fact, what Crisis Group has been advocating from the beginning has been a more gradualist approach whereby sanctions, and this is, I know is very difficult in practical terms, but the idea being that you could ramp up or scale back sanctions in accordance with the behavior of the government concerned. Um, So that if there were moves towards democracy, then you would relax sanctions a bit. And if there were moves away, you would impose more. But it's interesting and and I think worth commenting that Ali made a mention of the question of multilateralism. There really hasn't been anybody, any government, despite the fact that there are nearly 60 governments that have recognized Juan Guaidó is the legitimate president of Venezuela. None of them, apart from the United States, has um, has actually gone so far as to impose sectoral sanctions. So, um, Phil, we'll come back to some of the costs of sanctions in Venezuela in a moment, the, the sort of human toll that sanctions have contributed to. But, Ali, let's come back to you. So, Venezuela over the past four years, has obviously been on the receiving end of, of a sort of a, a variant of President Trump's maximum pressure strategy. But it's Iran that has really experienced the full US maximum pressure approach. What has that actually entailed over the last four years? And how have sanctions actually fit into that? So look, uh, maximum pressure was uh, primarily a course of economic policy against Iran, but it had other dimensions as well. There were covert dimensions, cyber dimensions, diplomatic, political and military dimensions. But the core of it was really an economic sanctions policy. And the Trump administration really threw the entire kitchen sink at the Iranians. There were, uh, according to uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, 77 rounds of sanctions, uh, nearly 1,700 designations of Iranian individuals and entities. And the reality is that U.S. sanctions on their own, despite opposition from most of the world, including great powers, European allies, proved to be extremely effective in harming the Iranian economy. You know, Iran has now experienced three years of recession, uh, along with very high inflation. Uh, Iranian oil exports went down from about 2.5 million barrels a a day to almost nothing, uh, nearly 100,000 barrels. And this really even surprised the uh, 
proponents of maximum pressure strategy because they also feared that without international support, U.S. sanctions uh, might not be as effective. But even rivals like uh, China ended up to a large extent complying with U.S. sanctions. Now, this will have long-term consequences for uh, U.S.'s use or overuse of, of this very powerful tool of statecraft that we can talk about. Uh, but in practice, sanctions were very effective. But did they have the intended effect? I would argue not at all. I mean, if you measure uh, the effectiveness of sanctions by the amount of pain that they have inflicted on the Iranians, they worked. But uh, if you measure it by how much closer they brought the U.S. to its strategic objectives, in fact, the Trump administration had outlined 12 very clear, concrete demands from the Iranians. And then in response to public outcry, added human rights to that as well. So 13 demands. And, uh, you know, at the end of the Trump administration, the, the score is zero to 13. Uh, none of the objective demands of the Trump administration were materialized. Ali, can I ask a follow up on that? Is your sense then, I mean, how then do we judge this kind of unilateral activity? So as you say, there is a way in which the U.S., of course, has been able to force other countries to go along with an approach to sanctions that they themselves did not choose to undertake. Certainly legally dubious, I think, in in many cases. But if these sanctions are failing to achieve their own internally stated goals, what's the yardstick of effectiveness, I guess, is the question. Is it just the the sort of destruction of the economy or, or is there as Richard had suggested at the outset, is there a sense that there is an effect in terms of willingness to negotiate or to rethink Iran's position at the negotiating table itself? Uh, look, I would argue sanctions as a tool of coercive diplomacy are only as effective as the prospect of removing them is real in response to real policy changes. And I think on this issue, uh, U.S. experience with Iran has proven that there are serious problems with U.S. Uh, sanctions. First of all, remember, even during the Obama administration, with the political will of the entire administration and making sure that sanctions relief works, the Iranians were not able to reap the benefits of sanctions removal. Uh, this is primarily because U.S. sanctions are sticky both in law and in nature, in the sense that they create such a chilling effect that doesn't dissipate overnight. And there is no process, no machinery that works in the opposite direction of sanctions enforcement and basically designing and enforcing sanctions. OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the Treasury Department, uh, is designed to basically slap sanctions, slap punishment uh, on countries or entities that try to skirt sanctions. Uh, but it's a giant wheel that only moves in one direction. It does not do the opposite of making sure that uh, sanctions relief delivers the promised benefits and dividends uh, to, to the other side. And, you know, there is no metric for measuring this. There is no mechanism for ensuring that it's successful. And now the experience of the JCPOA, I think, has inflicted even more harm on uh, the credibility of U.S. sanctions relief in the sense that U.S. signature now seems as valid as the validity of the administration who has signed that agreement, which uh, creates serious doubt in the minds of companies that want to re-engage the Iranian market and invest, etc. And then from a legal perspective, you also have the fact that 
states can have their own sanctions and divestment policies. So in a case like the Iran deal, which was an executive agreement and not a treaty, states were not uh, obliged to comply with federal regulations. Uh, and so you could still have a, an important state like uh, New York, for instance, where a lot of financial transactions are channeled through New York uh, regulators. Uh, they could decide on their own to impose sanctions or block transactions. And even in cases that you have treaties, as again, we saw with the Trump administration, the president can easily, with just a signature, get out of the treaties uh, and nullify them. So uh, I think the U.S. has a major legal structural issue that it has to deal with if it wants to use its sanctions as a scalpel that would advance diplomacy, but not as a chainsaw uh, that would basically destroy any possibility of making diplomatic progress. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Ali Voyez and Phil Gunson. Phil, so if in Iran, as Ali said, sanctions were this chainsaw, they wrought enormous economic damage, really had a huge economic impact, but politically, the results were, were dismal. They failed to achieve their goals. Absent a realistic political strategy, absent goals that were, you know, in themselves realistic, no way to lift the sanctions. Now, how much does that resonate in Venezuela? Again, you've had this approach where you've had sanctions that have, from what I understand, worsened a humanitarian situation that was already bad due to the government's mismanagement, but worsened because of sanctions. And yet President Maduro, who the sanctions in part aimed to weaken, to ouster, has just, his party's just cleaned up in elections. He's looking in some ways stronger than ever. The opposition's lost support. Uh, in some way, it looks looks out in the cold. Maybe it even lost support because it backed sanctions that made Venezuelans' lives more miserable. So in some ways, the story is similar. The sanctions have an impact economically and in the humanitarian situation, they have an impact. But politically, they've been largely a failure. Well, that's right. As you say, the Venezuelan economy was in dire straits long before sanctions, sectoral sanctions, were imposed at the beginning of 2019. So it'd be wrong to attribute the extraordinary collapse of the Venezuelan economy, which is only about a fifth of the size now that it was when Maduro first came to power in 2013, to attribute that to, to the effect of sanctions. But that said, it's also not true, as, as defenders of, of sanctions say, that sanctions only affect the government or they only affect individuals. It's absolutely not the case, because regardless of all the exceptions, the exemptions that are made to the sanctions regime for food and for medicines and so on, humanitarian assistance. In practice, I suppose two basic reasons um, sanctions affect the lives of ordinary people in a very unpleasant way, in a situation where um, you know things are already extremely bad. One way is that they're designed to deprive the government of income. Venezuela, of course, like Iran, is, a, is an oil economy. It's been dependent for the past century primarily on the production of crude oil and oil products. And the U.S. sanctions, by depriving Venezuela not only of access to the U.S. financial system, but also to sales of oil in, in the U.S., which had been its primary customer, those have meant that government income, which in turn is used to import many basic goods, and, and including food, for example, that that income has been severely depleted. And so there's an effect there. There's also an effect, for example, in terms of fuel. The U.S. doesn't want anybody to sell gasoline to Venezuela. It may seem ironic that an oil, that an oil producer needs to import gasoline, but this is the, the extent of the collapse of the country. 
we need gasoline here. We need imports of gasoline in order to keep the vehicle fleet moving. And we also need imports of diesel. And they've now cut off that lifeline as well. Diesel is crucially important for the transport of food, even for things like ambulances. So, you know, to take a very simple example that, that often comes to mind when, when talking about this, if you have a sudden medical emergency, maybe you have a car or maybe you're dependent on, a, on an ambulance, but there's no fuel to get the person involved in the emergency to hospital, then people literally can die. And you can't say, obviously, that, you know, a particular person died because of sanctions. But you can certainly say that overall, the sanctions have made life much, much worse for ordinary people. And they've done so without producing a solution, as we say. So it's true, I think, uh, to suggest, I think the polling evidence would, would back this up, that the Venezuelan opposition has lost support because not only has it failed um, in its primary objective to get rid of Maduro, um, but in doing so, it has demonstrably been supportive of a policy that is quite clearly aimed at making life more miserable. Ali, could I come to you with a, with something that I think uh, Phil was just closing with, which was just the how we understand the human cost of sanctions? And my impression is sometimes in these conversations, particularly in the policy realm, sanctions can become so technical with the role of OFAC and other bureaucratic bodies that we talk about them almost as though it's a kind of a chess game. Um, but can you help us to better understand in a sort of experience sense, what is the human cost of the maximum pressure campaign for Iran and Iranians right now? Uh, look, I think one major issue with broad sanctions, uh, sectoral sanctions, is that they are effective in inflicting harm uh, on the country's economy, but they are going to affect also the citizenry of that country writ large. They are not targeted sanctions. They're really bring about misery for the entire population. I think one of the issues in this round of sanctions uh, with Iran, and you know, let me add that the Iranians have been dealing with sanctions since 1979. It's not a new phenomenon uh, in their life, uh, and they're pretty resilient. But nevertheless, this time around, because of the uh, nature of the maximum pressure sanctions, which uh, deprived Iran of having any kind of banking channels with the outside world. In the past, there were a few banks that uh, had no connections with state institutions who were in charge of conducting humanitarian transactions. Already by 2019, there were reports of serious uh, negative imp implications on imports of medicine into Iran, especially uh, specialized kind of medicine. Uh, Human Rights Watch, for instance, uh, published a very interesting report, heartbreaking report on how Iranian patients were dying uh, as a result of uh, the difficulty in, in buying uh, medicine from Europe or Japan or South Korea. This was before the pandemic. Now, in the middle of the pandemic, the Iranians also really suffered because they were one of the worst hit countries in the Middle East, but they had to fight the pandemic with one hand tied behind their back as a result of sanctions. And the Trump administration did not take any steps uh, to, to facilitate humanitarian uh, trade with Iran and, and efforts by the Europeans and others to try to uh, mitigate this issue also came to naught. So, you know, without any doubt, uh, sanctions have impoverished the Iranian middle class. Uh, they have cost lives uh, in the middle of this pandemic. But again, uh, you know, there is no way that you can pursue this kind of course of diplomacy without harming the general population. 
Uh, I think the other side of this coin, uh, which is often overlooked by policymakers uh, in the West, is that the kind of, you know, the, the political elite obviously are much better placed to survive the sanctions and even actually make profit out of it. Uh, for instance, in the case of Iran, uh, the Revolutionary Guards is the one who controls the, all the smuggling channels uh, into the country. And they actually are enriched during the sanctions. Uh, their rivals, uh, Western companies wanted to invest in Iran, are eliminated so they can take over a lot of economic projects. Uh, and again, they can make money through smuggling and controlling illicit uh, imports of much needed material into the country. So... Uh, sanctions mold an, a, a political economy uh, that runs in the exact opposite direction of what the sanctions designers were hoping to achieve, which is to empower almost the worst elements uh, in the political system that they wanted to bring a change to, uh, you know, either regime change or behavior change. You know, it's a debate, Ali, Phil, that we, we've had many times, but it's also a debate that we have across crisis group and many other places the sort of value the purpose of sanctions i mean broadly speaking sanctions can do different things right they can signal discontent they can ostracize they can limit options for sanctioned parties but the assumption tends to be also that they're they're about changing behavior and if and if we talk sort of only about changing behavior there's usually sort of a few lessons that i think we try to think through before we recommend sanctions and i wanted to run these by you and, and see what you think of these based on your experiences in venezuela and iran so the first one is that the sanctions have to be part of a, a, a sort of realistic political strategy you know they have to be part of a wider diplomatic strategy that's first the second one is that the goal has to be realistic phil as you said you know regime change can't be the the, the goal if it's not realistic Third, it needs to be clear exactly what the sanctioned party needs to do to have sanctions lifted and then how the sanctions are actually lifted if that happens. And then you know, maybe in some cases the threat of sanctions can have a greater impact than sanctions themselves. It can also be a form of leverage. And I think as a general rule, multilateral sanctions tend to be more effective than, than unilateral. Uh, but I'd be interested again in, in your experiences sort of to think through Based on what's happened with the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy over the last four years, what are the sort of lessons that a, a Biden administration, but also others, European governments, the European Union, uh, the UN Security Council, what are the lessons, what are some of the things that they should think through when they're thinking of sanctioning individuals, entities, leaders? Well, I think you've hit the, the, the main points there, Rich. I mean, those are precisely the lessons I think that we would draw. As I was saying before, it's interesting that um, nobody but the US, in the case of Venezuela, has gone down the road of sexual sanctions. And I think that one of the, the, the principal difficulties, aside from you know, all, all that you were mentioning, what, one of the things that, that happens with this is that it, it does become so difficult to reverse. As Ali was saying before, you know, once you've gone down this road, we, for example, I mean, in crisis group, we never recommended sectoral sanctions. We, we, we were opposed, for example, to the idea of imposing um, oil sanctions on, on Venezuela precisely for the reasons that we've gone into. But now that they're in place, what do you do with that? Because if the government of Maduro has made no concessions whatsoever, if it has not only failed to um, bring back free and fair elections, but actually gone in the opposite direction, and he's going further in the opposite direction every day. To lift sanctions then becomes a kind of reward for doing the wrong thing. So you're stuck with a policy that is um, is not working. And what you what you need to do, I suppose, is to retrofit some kind of rational policy onto 
the sanctions policy that hasn't worked. And that, that's going to produce a kind of Frankenstein monster. <laughs> Who knows whether that will, will actually work. But that, that's kind of the situation that, that I think we're in at the moment, making the best of a mess that has been inherited. On that theme, Ali, what about your conclusions? So look, I don't think we can indict sanctions as as a tool of policy. Uh, for for sure, they have their own use, but uh, but I would argue that uh, they have to be designed in a way that you know they are in pursuit of narrow and realistic objectives that uh, really do not amount to a declaration of total surrender from the other side. The second element is that uh, they have to be multilateral, even if the U.S. has proven that unilaterally it can impose very powerful. Uh, sanctions, and it can turn the switch on and off also on its own. I think down the road, if the U.S. continues using this tool in a unilateral manner, uh, other countries in the world will start developing uh, mechanisms to go around sanctions. Even now, the Europeans are trying to uh, reduce their reliance on uh, dollarized uh, transactions and on the U.S. financial system. So, you know, one can imagine China, Russia and other countries would also develop uh, other mechanisms that would then down the road create less transparency in the global financial system, which is not in the interest of anyone. The other element I think that is key is that the policymakers who design sanctions would have to have a clear metric for assessing their success and effectiveness. And they have to evaluate and reevaluate again and again every few months to make sure that they're moving in the right direction. And also to evaluate the unintended consequences of sanctions, uh, the humanitarian impact of sanctions. There is also environmental impact of sanctions. Let me uh, here put in a plug for another project that I've been working on. Um, it is called Iran Under Sanctions, and the reports uh, related to it are published on Johns Hopkins website. Um, basically looks into different dimensions of sanctions in a very deep dive kind of way, implications of sanctions for Iran. Uh, and it looks in, into some dimensions that are all, or often overlooked, like the environmental implications, like the impact on illicit drug trade, for instance. And some of these impacts, one has to realize, outlive the sanctions themselves because they change the uh, the trade patterns or the political economy of a, con- of a country uh, in ways that would have a generational impact. And finally, I would say, just like a, a real war, uh, when you wage an economic war, you have to think about reconstruction uh, after that war has ended because, you know, you can't impose these kind of stifling sanctions on countries uh, and then once you lift the sanctions on paper, uh, expect them to do reconstruction on their own. I think it is the responsibility of the countries that impose sanctions to try to make sure that the target countries can get back on their feet and the people uh, in Iran or Venezuela or, or wherever that is can really reap the benefits of the change in the policies of their respective governments. Thanks, Eli. And I think in some ways reminding us that one of the elements I'm hearing in what you said is the idea of responsibility, that just like war with bombs and guns and weapons, there is responsibility that ought to attach with the kind of awesome power involved in these unilateral sanctions, and uh, indeed perhaps an increased responsibility for other states that have been so far perhaps less vocal about their uh, criticism of the impact of these sanctions. Uh, And indeed, perhaps we are on the brink of a different era on this issue, partly as a result of the reputational costs to the U.S. of the behavior of the Trump administration. 
Uh, with that, Phil, I wanted to come to you with a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Raphael writes in with a with an interesting question, moving us a little bit away from the issue of sanctions, but asking us a bit more context on the Venezuelan situation. And I'll just read his question here. Um, he was wondering what you think about the deep involvement of non-state armed actors in the Venezuelan crisis. Oftentimes, power sharing has been suggested as a way out of this crisis. But considering the huge influence and on-the-ground presence and indeed governance of the ELN, ex-FARC dissidents and the colectivos, are they to be included in a power sharing agreement? Uh, how might they be brought to the table and away from arms? And is it reasonable to assume that these groups and their illicit economies may shape Venezuela for the next decades as they have uh, in Colombia? Over to you. Yeah, we could probably do a whole different program on, on that subject, which is one that's close to my heart because the first yes. ever report that I wrote for crisis group about 10 years ago now was precisely on this on this point about the connections between um, non-state armed groups and the state and the the influence of violent organizations on the political future of Venezuela. It's enormously complex. Um, first of all, I don't think um, that any of these groups should be part of any kind of political settlement. I think that they are, in every case, groups that need to be addressed as a policing issue um, more than anything else. These are essentially criminal groups, even the ones that have political varnish on them, if you like, or have political pretensions. The ELN in Venezuela is not the same as the ELN in Colombia. I mean, the ELN in Colombia, ostensibly at least, is seeking to overthrow the government and, and establish a, a socialist state. In Venezuela, it's a purely criminal organization, although it has strong links to the government. And there's a kind of patchwork right across the country whereby in some areas you have uh, the dominant group being uh, organized crime. In other areas, you have former Colombian guerrillas or active Colombian guerrillas. You have mining, what they call mining syndicates, or you have the so-called colectivos, which are an outgrowth of the state. So to the extent that these groups are are that exactly the, an outgrowth of the state, then there's no, no need to consider them separately. They would ideally be demobilized as part of any agreement with the current government. There's a big issue with the guerrillas, of course, because in theory, what should happen is that the Colombian government should reach a deal with the guerrillas that, that belong to it, that come from there. And that's not beyond the agreement with the FARC that was signed. The ELN has not actually yet been party to any deal. And now that's much more complicated precisely because they're able to use Venezuela as a rearguard. I think the, the real danger to try, and, to try and sum up is that in any kind of transition, what you will find is that the violence is likely to become worse rather than better in the first instance, because you're replacing a government that in many ways is complicit with all these groups with a government which presumably, at least to some extent, will want to combat them and will want to restore uh, state control over the territory that they control right now. So in the first instance, you may have an uptick in violence. And the difficulty is with security forces that are severely compromised by corruption and, and, and desertion and other issues, how are you going to do that unless other countries are willing to send in some kind of armed contingent in order to help you out? Thanks so much. I think, as you said, definitely fodder for a future discussion talking about the role of non-state actors and different various ways that that complicates the story 
of uh, trying to bring a close to conflict or who ought to be at the negotiating table. Thanks so much for engaging that. And thanks to our listener. And we certainly um, encourage all of you to send questions for future conversations. Uh, Well, Richard, I think you'll join me in thanking Ali and Phil. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today for this uh, fascinating discussion. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So, Richard, I think that was a a great uh, introduction to the complex issue of U.S. unilateral sanctions on Iran and Venezuela. And I think I was left with a sense that fixing this is going to be an incredible challenge. Well, I think there's there's two bits to that, right? I mean, there's fixing the the legacy of the maximum pressure strategies in Iran and Venezuela, which is, you know, in both cases, I mean, I know Iran is is really top of the the incoming Biden administration's agenda, but how they navigate, you know, a a new approach to Iran, I think that's obviously going to be a big, big challenge. The broader question, I think, for me, is it came through in the discussion very much with Ali and Phil very articulately. You know, I think it's sort of drawing the right lessons from what have been, you know, big, big failures in in the Trump administration's policies about sanctions, because there is always going to be a strong push by many policy actors to sanction. Uh, It allows policy actors to do something that's more than diplomacy, but isn't military action. Uh, So there's always going to be a strong uh, impetus for that. And and to try to, where there are sanctions, make sure that they do serve a a diplomatic strategy, that they're realistic. You know, all the things we talked about, to draw the right lessons about them, you know, I think is going to be another, you know, an important part of what the new administration needs to think through. And not just the U.S. administration. I mean, it's also also important for the European Union. It's, of course, important for the U.N. Security Council as well. So, So, yeah, really fascinating discussion. Yeah, and I think in some ways, one of the things that was highlighted in the conversation is that uh, given that often these approaches don't get the same attention as war with violence and, and lethality and weapons, the importance of Crisis Group and some of the other organizations that were mentioned and that will link their publications uh, to the show notes to bring attention to the the impact of these measures and to bring attention to to the failure of some of these measures to achieve their goals. It seems to me to be even more critical to ensure that that p- publics and policymakers understand what results are actually um, being meted out by these kinds of approaches. With that, uh, Richard, I think we'll bring today's conversation to a close. Thank you so much for co-hosting and for joining. I want to encourage everyone to send questions, as our listener did today, to media at crisisgroup.org. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. And of course, as always, we want to thank the incredible Crisis Group team who is responsible for putting this podcast together. Thank you so much and have a good week. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.